This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, November 20th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. When people pick parallels for the Trump administration, Nixon often floats to the top of the list. But historian Anthony Comegna argues, as he did nearly four years ago on this very podcast, that the better parallel is that of President John Tyler. He explains why. Yeah, so almost four years ago, I think it was just a month or two into Trump's presidency, uh, you and I had this discussion on the podcast about Trumpism and Tylerism. And, you know, people have been throwing around all sorts of comparisons between Trump and other presidents, 2016 and other elections. And I thought, clearly, he's John Tyler. He's most like John Tyler. Um, I mean, a couple things by that. We talked about this in the old episode, and I thought it would be a good idea to revisit this thesis now that uh, the Trump presidency uh, seems to have come to a close. And, you know, I think a couple of the key things are uh, his accidency and delusion uh, in the desire to set up a, a continuing movement based on a cult of personality. And that sounds bizarre because we barely remember John Tyler, but a couple things here. You're, like you said, he took over for Harrison after he died a month into office, many libertarians' favorite president for that very reason. Um, but Tyler takes over, and uh, first time that it ever happened, People called him his accidency because he he didn't even seem to really belong in the Whig Party. But at the time, it was this weird agglomeration of anti-Jackson Democrats and small R Republicans and old Federalists and all sorts of things. Um, and he seemed to have just been shoehorned into the Tippecanoe and Tyler II slogan to begin. Yeah, with. But, right. He was he was more <laughs> or less a Democrat though, just an anti-Jackson Democrat, which was a pretty common thing at the time. Um, John C. Calhoun was was an, an anti-Jackson Democrat, and uh, Tyler represented that wing of, of uh, America, uh, which at the time fit more comfortably in the Whig coalition. So he becomes their vice president for a variety of reasons and accidentally finds himself as the president. Now, I think Trump was clearly an accidental president in, in a similar way. Nobody really expected him to, to win at any point along the way. Including possibly Donald Trump. Yes, of course. <laughs> Maybe especially Donald Trump. Um, and the Clinton campaign even made it part of their tactics to to boost him as though he were the, the main Republican candidate the whole way through. Never forget. So they would end up with a ridiculous nominee. Well, how did that work out? It was a complete fluke, an accident of American political life. Uh, one that, in another Jacksonian phrase, the sober second thought of the people has come along to to correct for. Um, but you know, the other thing is this delusional attempt to construct a politics on a personal basis. The whole thing about the American party system is, is to be anti-personality that we've got all these competing factions and ideas and interest groups in American life. And we need some powerful overarching national organizations to mitigate all of that. Uh, the parties might be run by bosses, but they're not supposed to be uh, you know, uh, uh, part and parcel sold out to a particular individual uh, to do their bidding. People tend to revolt against that, including lower rung party bosses. John Tyler was not, he got into office and vetoed everything the, the Whig Congress put in front of him because he was not really a wit. And they kicked him out of the party. Democrats hated him and Whigs hated him. And he said, you know what? Screw these parties. I'm going to make a, a third party run 
an independent run for president in 1844 on the basis of Tylerism, this independent force in American politics that was going to show the parties that they could not control the people. Um, and uh, of, of course, that was a dismal failure. And he realized that uh, when neither of the two parties wanted anything to do with him at their nominating conventions, and they went with other candidates. When the Democrats, though, chose uh, James K. Polk, an expansionist, uh, imperialist, Tyler said, you know what? I'm a Southern planter. I sympathize with those goals. I want slaves to pour across into Texas too. I'm going to make the cornerstone of my legacy, securing Texas and expanding the territory of the United States in a massive way. So even be be before Polk enters office, uh, as we know, Polk was the progenitor of the Mexican-American War, where he stole half of that country and expanded territory across the, the continent, uh, expanded slavery across the continent. Um, it, it was already a, a done deal diplomatically bef before John Tyler left office. The, the treaty was already on the table, uh, ready to be signed. Texas was coming into the Union the next year. So um, we, he, he in, in a desperate attempt to, to uh, secure his legacy after it was clear that neither party wanted anything more to do with him, that he was toxic, that he was a loser, finally, uh, they had no use for him. And, and the way that he secured his legacy was, was by committing a horrible international crime, a horrible set of domestic crimes, uh, expanding slavery, and really setting up the, the kinds of political divide that led us to civil war. Uh, it's not annexing Texas is not quite offering to buy Greenland. Um, <laughs> and it sort it set the stage, I suppose, for uh, Polk's annexation of additional chunks of the Southwest. Yeah, yeah, the entirety of, of the Southwest almost, aside from the bit of what Arizona and the Gadsden Purchase that we bought later on. No, it was it was a huge, huge transfer of, of territory. Like I said, half of Mexico stolen. So Tyler, in being both very unpopular with the two major parties at the time, and annexing Texas and trying to split off uh, by seizing support from both of the major parties. What did that accomplish? What he essentially did with his time in office, uh, his policies, his attempt to secure a political legacy, um, and his life afterward uh, as a pro-Southern pro-slavery Democrat, um, what, what he really did was gave uh, uh, impetus and country to what was a growing and deepening, ever-radicalizing pro-slavery movement. Uh, so all of his, his time and his actions in office from the Door War in Rhode Island and his, his opposition to that universalist suffragist effort to, to enfranchise uh, all Rhode Islanders, um, except women, of course. Uh, but it, he, he opposed that uh, as much as he could, precisely because Southern planters realized that if we have this radical Republican movement take hold in Rhode Island, transforming their constitution and their state, that could infect Southern states. And suddenly you'd have black majorities in South Carolina and Mississippi and stuff. Can't have that. Uh, we, in fact, what we need to do is secure planter interests by securing more land out West and it, it gave that faction of uh, American, the American power elite, 
a tremendous boost right when they needed it. Uh, nothing, nothing in the antebellum period was more important than acquisition of new slave land. So Tyler, um, and- he fights, he fights for us, the Southern <laughs> slave owning planters. Yes, yes. And the thing about that ideology is that, sure, Tylerism fails. Uh, the the mo- political movement and ideology based on the man, John Tyler, is going nowhere uh, because we do have this uh, very powerful party system in place that, that mitigates those kinds of dramatic personal interests. But, but the philosophy uh, of, of radical Southern pro-slavery that he supported in office and with his policies and uh, with uh, territorial expansion, that only deepened and got worse and worse and more bizarre, really, really deeply disturbing and, and you know, insane kind of stuff uh, to, the, to the point where you have uh, Southerners, of course, wanting to open the international slave trade again. You've, you've got uh, people like George Fitzhugh arguing that even poor whites should be enslaved because slavery is actually the natural, normal way of society. And uh, as one historian said, he preferred Sir Robert Filmer and all of his works to John Locke. Uh, uh, Fitzhugh had nothing but contempt for John Locke. And Southerners said over and over repeatedly, and more and more as time went on, that the Declaration of Independence and its arguments that all men are created equal and have natural rights and all of this, that's Satan speaking through Thomas Jefferson, um, that Satan was the first to speak of human rights. Instead, what we have are duties and obligations, right? Um, and you're supposed to do what you're told. And they had, I mean, it's a, it's a profoundly uh, disturbing view of society. And if, the, if that faction had won the political fights of the day, I kind of shudder to think uh, what the rest of the century and, and the, the next would have looked like. Fitzhugh and Calhoun. Uh as far as I could tell, should have been on opposite sides of a whole lot of issues of the day, but slavery was not one of them? Oh, no, no. And, and now I should stress that very, very, very few Southerners had any regard for somebody like George Fitzhugh. They were not on board, by and large, with the idea that they should be <laughs> enslaved too. You know. But that, my point is that's where this thinking gets you. Uh, who, who is being honest with themselves? When, when they think, you know, uh, Jared Kushner cares about the little guy or something like that, or that Richard Spencer doesn't have utter contempt for the people who attend his events or whatever. Uh, in, in Nazi Germany, the, the fascists were generally speaking very smart, sharp people, at least in the party, right? They were, a lot of them, intellectuals and really smart operators and in very, you know, many regards of, of, of manipulation, but the, the regular person was just like a street brawler drunk. And, and the, the people in the higher echelons had nothing but contempt for their, for their supporters. And, um, you know, it even came to, to such crazy points where somebody like Hinton helper who was anti-slavery, uh, but, but he was a North Carolinian. He was anti-slavery because he thought that it, it had harmful effects on whites so what was his solution by the late 1850s and into the 1860s? Not emancipation, not freedom for people of color, but their complete liquidation from the entire planet. So we've got true, actual, factual uh, dreamers for global genocide 
in the slave South, even, even from people who, again, oppose slavery. Uh, he opposed slavery because he didn't want any more people of color on the planet. How does Tylerism end? It, does it just, is it just a transference of energy from the views of him as a fighter for Southern interests into a more radicalized white supremacy? Yeah, well, again, you know, John Tyler's never a figurehead in this. Uh, there's a brief period of time in his presidency where some people fiercely love him for his vetoes, you know, and his willingness to stand up to the parties. But when he, again, when he's proven to be a political loser, he personally is out. But the ideas that were sort of the backbone of the administration run rampant and they get worse and worse and worse and more politically toxic and you know divisive and uh how does tylerism end it ends with the civil war and almost a million people dead and horrible destruction and poverty and you know dramatic growth of government first in the south and then in the north as a, through the course of the war and he dies in 1862 but the real end of tylerism is when um his plantation is burned by union soldiers including all of his papers, his, his personal and, and uh, professional papers. So we will never have a John Tyler papers collection. Uh, they're, you know, in ashes scattered somewhere around Northern Virginia, uh, perhaps where they should be. So uh, to, again, I don't want to draw as clean parallels to uh, Tyler, to, to Trump, but it, the one that does seem to be uh uh, most likely or most possible is the idea of Trumpism surviving his presidency and that uh, Trumpism will turn into uh, something else I ideological. There's obviously a, a growing uh, conspiracy theory element to a lot of the, the things that uh, Trump himself has advocated and his uh, agents have advocated in public and the people, some some groups that are most loyal to him as a leader have projected onto him this attitude that he is some sort of savior who is fighting to stop some global war on children. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you can keep going because uh, <laughs> there's there's so much more that you could add to that list. Go, I say keep going for it. But no, it's it's one it's one nutty theory and connection with some group of conspiracy theorists after another. I, it's, it's a, it's been a never ending list here. And boy, if you go down the QAnon rabbit hole, it is uh, quite a strange place. Um, and yeah, you know, my, my hope, uh, or I should say my belief is that uh, Trump will not personally have any real role to play moving forward. Um, I, to be perfectly frank about it, uh, somebody's got to recognize it if he still won't. He lost. He's the loser here. Big time loser. The Republicans won relative to him. They did much better than him. Uh, they don't need him anymore. And, and certainly the Democrats don't want anything ever to do with anybody like him, anyone who's touched him. And so I don't see much of a role for him moving forward except to to doggedly and delusionally continue this search for a Trumpism, uh, this search for a Trump movement. And I think what we'll find is that he this is not a movement. 
this is certainly not a Trump movement. Per perhaps it, it's accurate to call this a nativist or a racist or a fascist even movement of some sort in America that might be growing and growing just like the pro-slavery wing of, of American uh, thought in the 1830s and 40s. But I doubt he's going to have anything to do with it just because he's a loser now. And that's a hard thing to come back from, especially for a guy who's dug himself in so much on being a winner. Um, he doesn't have anything to offer them anymore. And, and those small time party bosses are going to uh, really do all they can. They will feel so happy when, when he is out and they do not have to, to worry about him anymore. And I know people keep saying 72 million or whatever it is, 72 million people voted for Trump still. What do you think about that? What does that say? Well, partisanship sucks. Tribalism is awful. Democracy is not that great. Uh, <laughs> and you know, it, 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 our political system has all sorts of problems, but but that doesn't mean that Trump is actually who and what he said he is this whole time. Um, and it certainly doesn't mean that, you know, the, the QAnon folks are right to, to think of him as the ultimate savior. Sorry, that's not going to happen. He's he's out. And, and I think his influence is basically done. Now, who comes along next? Who's the James K. Polk, right? Who are the northern traitors, the uh, the uh, abettors of the pro-slavery cause, the doe faces, as they were called, who can just be punched and mashed and molded by the, the aristocrats in the South into whatever they want them to be, the Franklin Pierces, the James Buchanans, who are they? Uh, where's Jeff Davis waiting in the wings to take up the cause to its ultimate conclusion, um, uh, even if it leaves Trumpism in flames and ashes? by the end. What you mean is who is the next person to seize upon the energy that is within those groups who previously had aligned themselves very strongly with Donald Trump? Yeah, the energy you needed you need a winner's energy, right? You need somebody who's going to win. Uh you need your chieftain, your Andrew Jackson, who's your your, you know, uh Polk who's going to charge in there and and take victory. Um and he he can't do that anymore. Uh, he's not going to do that. So somebody else is going to try. Those ideas are really the big thing. You know, the the bad ideas that have been introduced and and uh, been been given space and favor uh, all these years. The the you know the new ways that people are talking uh, online and to each other. Everything that we've been you know uh, remarking upon throughout the course of the Trump presidency and how how toxic it and damaging it is to American life and institutions. Who continues that work of degrading it and perverting it and corrupting it and twisting it to their private uses, their class uses, whatever it might be, who's going to continue that work? Uh, and I think sadly there are plenty of options, but I really doubt Trump is one of them. Historian Anthony Comegna hosts the Ideas in Progress podcast. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.